Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we can gather together as your people this day and just during this summertime dive into what we believe and why we believe it. And we just ask, Lord, you would speak new truths into our hearts and that we'd be encouraged in it and recognize more than ever that you're not angry with us. You love us with that everlasting love. And there's no condemnation. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I don't know how many of you read Robert Louis Stevenson's novella, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Some of us had to read it in high school. It's kind of hideous, you know. But it was short, so I read it, you know. And it was one of the, it was an option, and that's the only reason I read it. But, you know, quite frankly, there, it's shocking when you see the movies and the portrayals of it, this one paragraph is never portrayed in any of the movies. Dr. Jekyll is realizing that he's become Mr. Hyde. And he's made a resolution to himself. So he resolves in my future conduct to redeem the past and my resolve was fruitful. You know how earnestly in the last few months of this last year I labored to relieve the suffering. You know how I lived. You know how much was done for other people. But on one fine, clear day, I was sitting in the sun in Regent's Park. And I reflected and smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect of their fellow man. At the very thought of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and dreadful shuddering. I looked down, and I once more was Edward Hyde without ever drinking the potion. Today, brothers and sisters, we launch into the next six weeks in Romans 7 and 8. We, we do this as a tradition at Christ Church, just do two chapters of Roman year after year until I drop dead. Why? Because it's Paul's magnum opus, and it's filled with the gospel, and it's filled with me. It's filled with you and the struggles that we have in the Christian life. And so we don't do it in one fell swoop. We just do two chapters a year, and we last did it. We left off in Romans 6, February 23rd, 2020, is when we were last here. When we last heard Paul ring, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was a glorious finishing up of 5 and 6. So let's do a quick review of where we've been. You might remember Paul's letter to the Romans is his longest and the most significant, really, of his letters to the church. He was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to that group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate, devout the law, meaning the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, devout in law-keeping, and he saw the Jesus followers as a threat to Judaism. But he had a radical encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, 
and this risen Jesus had commissioned him as an apostle, meaning an official representative to the world of non-Jewish people called the Gentiles. In, In Hebrew, the goyim. And so he started by going by his Roman name and not his Jewish name, Paul. He traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen Jesus. It's true, he proclaimed, and forming his followers into new communities under a new term called the church. And so Paul occasionally wrote letters to these churches that would help them in their faith and answer some of their questions. And this book of Roman is one of these actually written later in Paul's life, around 57 A.D. Who's the Roman emperor in 57 A.D.? Take a guess. Nero. Well done, class. (laughs) So Nero is emperor when he writes this. Burning Christians at the stake. Beginning to put them as food for the lions. Okay, that's that's the culture that they're in here. Now, we know from the book of Acts, the Roman church has existed for years, but Nero's predecessor, Claudius, had banned the Jews from Rome. And so for five years, Jews weren't allowed in the city limits. Well, somehow, I guess Nero had a had a change of heart and just let them in anyway. So by the time these Jews came back, and these were Jewish believers in Jesus, they came back to their church, which was a house church, and it was filled with all these Roman believers. And, and, you know, they disagreed about how to do the Christian life. Because after all, we know that you should celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday and not Sunday. And as we all know, you should be circumcised. Even though you're not circumcised, you should be circumcised. And you should eat kosher, thought the Jewish believers. So Paul writes this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided Jesus movement to come together and be unified under the good news of Jesus. And they're a Jesus movement, and it would spread. He was also hoping practically that this movement in Rome could launch him to the east to go back into Spain. He was hoping to go there. And so while these circumstances motivated Paul to write out the fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he was announcing about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. This letter was designed to lay it out explicitly. We saw in chapter 1 that all humanity is hopelessly trapped and is in need of a rescue. Chapter 2, that rescue, however, is not going to happen through obeying rules. Chapter 3, rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, so that he could create a multi-ethnic group of family all under Abraham's umbrella and new covenant people. So last year in 2020, we saw in chapter 5, in Christ, we're given a new status. We're right with God through Jesus Christ. We're given a new family, God's people known as the church, and we're given a new hope. And he reminds us that we aren't like Adam, live under that old humanity. We live under the Jesus-like humanity. And we're called 
to live such a life. And therefore, chapter 6, he then begins to recognize that we're new creations. We're dead to sin, and we're alive as new creatures in Jesus Christ each and every day when we wake up. That's our resolve as his followers. We're dead to sin, alive to him in Christ because of what he's done for us. And so it ends with, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then you get to chapter 7, or do you not know, brothers? You with me now? So let's go. Where's your first love? That's what he wants to ask, because he uses this weird marriage analogy, or metaphor, if you will. Where's our first love? We're either married to the law, Sometimes it's the law of our own creation, which is a Jesus plus or a Jesus minus gospel, or we're married to the Lord spiritually, okay? Let's look at this, okay? First one, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. It's kind of (laughs) weird when you start, you read that, you hear Marie read that, and you go, what is he talking about? All right. Well, given that quick review, you're tying it together. He's likening our relationship to the Lord in marriage. That a woman married to a man is not free to go out and do whatever she wants. Neither is he. And not be called an adulteress. If they go out and have another relationship, they're adulterers. But if he dies, she is free. Right? And he makes this comparison to marriage. Like I said, it's kind of weird. But what Paul is saying is you must die to the law to belong to another. What he means by that is up to this point, we were married to the law into rule keeping. To be a believer is to do this, do this, do this. But when you become married, not only does your entire life revolve around your spouse, so does your self-image, your self-program, your self-esteem, and your self-worth. Everyone who's married knows that true. Because ever since January 12th, 1985, I'm Kim Sherman's husband. It changed. You know, my parents had taught me who I was, you know, who I am, how I'm supposed to live, and what have you. And people did that for you. You know, your teachers, your coaches informed us all who we are. But then we got married. And it doesn't matter what the world says. The world might say you're ugly, but if your spouse says you're beautiful, you're beautiful. (laughs) See what I'm saying? To be married to the law means you're getting your very self from your performance rather than God says to you who you are in Christ. You're looking into the face of the law and you're saying, I'm good. I'm I'm a good person. I'm obedient. I'm moral. I'm a Christian. I read the Bible. I pray. I'm a good person. And Paul is pointing out 
you're trying to prove yourself to God or to other people on the basis of your performance. But then he turns it on its head in, in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order to bear fruit. Why, 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 do, we, why do we try to always marry ourselves to our works? Why do we do that? I think it's naturally out of our bent to do it our way to think we can do it our way and be successful at it, out of fear, you know? You know, I don't want to be like those awful people, therefore I will be who I'm supposed to be. Therefore, you're trying in a sense to earn your own salvation into Jesus plus gospel. Earn your self-image through your performance and you become driven by that. You know, the result of that typically is you become a very judgmental person, right? You criticize people quickly, and yet you're crushed by others' criticism. You're furious and you're condescending toward people who don't hold your beliefs and you can't handle failure. And fear basically is self-absorption. You're always thinking about, well, what about me? What are people thinking about me? How am I looking? How are people treating me? And you can't deal with that self-absorption, therefore, and fear by saying, I'm going to be really good. Then God will bless me. And that just makes it worse. Because what Paul is saying is that each and every one of us is an Edward Hyde. Who's trying to rear his head. We're all Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. When God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, that didn't fix the problem of the sinful human heart. And so paradoxically, these rules, says Paul, made by Israel, make us even more guilty. And Paul says that paradox is the exact point. God's goal is to make it crystal clear that it's that evil that's hijacked each and every one of us. And that the law, as good as it is, can do nothing about it. Only our Lord Jesus Christ can. Therefore, we're spiritually married to another. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, verse 4, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We need to become another's spiritual spouse where's our first love we need to have someone else's face looking into our face in order to find out who we really are we die according to verse 4 to belong to another through Jesus death of Jesus Christ on the cross in order to bear fruit for God not bear fruit for death for while we were living verse 5 in the flesh our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. We don't live however we want. We live out of a different motivation. 
Because out of the abundant life that Jesus gives us freely in him, he's not angry with you. In Jesus Christ, he loved you. And therefore, our motive is to live unto him who loved us in this end. At the end of the novella, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, Jekyll kills himself. Spoiler alert. <laughs> you should have read it anyway. Uh, justice is coming for him. Why? Because Edward Hyde had murdered people. But he was never having to pay for his sins because the police couldn't find him because he took the potion and he changed back to Dr. Jekyll. When Jekyll realized he was becoming Mr. Hyde permanently, he realized he was going to be caught by the police. He was going to have to pay for his sins. Judgment day was coming. So he killed himself. It's quite the metaphor, isn't it? And the reality is for each and every one of us, no matter how hard we hide, no matter how hard we put it off, eventually our sins will find us out. We will have a judgment as well. But there's something that's coming for us that's going to stand in the gap for us. Isaiah wrote it this way. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. Did you hear that? We esteemed him not. We were appalled at him. We couldn't even look at him. But yet the same Paul writes the Corinthian church and says, God made him sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him sin, pure evil. Jesus Christ became the hideous one and took our judgment day. He died for us when we were hideous. And Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us that he could present us to himself pure, beautiful, without spot or blemish. That's what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. I told you he's not angry with you. In Jesus, he presents us beautiful, without spot or blemish. See, there's a moral version of running from God who says, I'm afraid God's going to get me, so I better be good. And there's an immoral version of such fear that says, I'm afraid God's going to oppress me, so I have to live whatever I want to. Only Jesus Christ, as your new heavenly spouse, who has given himself unconditionally when you were hideous, can make you beautiful. And he loves to do that. He says, I love you unconditionally. And if you look into his face and see that only that will eventually destroy the fears you have of a complete walk with him, a full walk with him, and that's the heart and center of your being in him that drives you, 
and creates a new motive for you, the motive of pure gratitude, security in him, love for him. Therefore, we live. And when we live this way, it's radical. The world looks at what changed in you. But in Jesus Christ, it's a new life and it's a new hope. So we go out into the world. We speak the truth in love. We give away our material, our money to the poor out of love, out of joy, out of sheer gratitude. That's the only motivation that won't drive us into the ground. So let us, let the spousal love of Jesus totally reconfigure your motivations for life. We're going to sing during communion at the end of our time a wonderful hymn, a modern hymn written by Bob Coughlin. I think this expresses Paul, verses 1 through 6, very well. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me, made me yours forevermore. Brothers and sisters, there's no condemnation upon you in Christ Jesus. He's fought the holy war. May we love and worship him forevermore. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us this wonderful, encouraging message. As weird as it is, and as dark as it may seem be, uh, we get to the end of this chapter. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Through him we die to our old spouse, the law. And we live to fear, you know, because we live out of love for you and your reassuring love. And we can look into the face of our heavenly spouse, our first love, and hear him say, I love you. I died for you. It's, it's not about your walk. It's about my walk for you. Trust me. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to apply this throughout this week. Through the power of your Holy Spirit in each and every one of us, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.